What do we know about Christ's return? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by the Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me is Josh Hayes. Uh, For those who may not have heard our last episode on Monday, uh, Josh is the uh, production content editor for The Gospel Project. He is an online instructor at Westminster Theological Seminary and an adjunct professor at Union University, among other many wonderful things. And he is joining us here um, on the on the show. So this is uh, this is exciting times because we're in your wheelhouse now. Oh yeah, very very fun. Well, anytime we're talking about doctrine, uh, theology from a systematic uh, standpoint, I, I'm just a kid in a in a candy store. I'm already nerdy enough, as listeners probably could tell from the last episode where. Uh, comic books and uh, comic book movies and theology all interface together uh, and then today they'll just get more of the same and hopefully that doesn't that doesn't result in a dip down in, in our listenership or our, our, our ratings on uh, iTunes. I think it's going to be great. So let's dig in because today we are talking about a not an all contentious hmm. bit of theology. This is one that everyone is fully in agreement on. It's one that has never divided or split a church. It's one that has never had a conference subject about it. So, because who needs it? We're talking about Christians eating bacon, right? Everybody's in a Oh, 100%. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. Okay. Uh, no, we're talking about the second coming of Christ today, which, of course, um, is a hotly contested doctrine in some respects in some respects and we're going to get into why in just a, in in just a minute there are certain things that all Christians agree upon in in some but there but there are particulars about it that people are not always 100% sure on and it's led to some vigorous debate um, so what we're going to do is we're going to kick off by reading the the definition that we have crafted for this doctrine Uh, in the 99 Essential Doctrines for the Gospel Project. And then we are going to uh, point out a few places we see this in Scripture. We're not going to be exhaustive in that uh, because, well, that's just not possible. And then we're going to get into a few big topics around it. So uh, so we'll kick it off off, uh, with the definition, which is this. The Bible is clear that one day Christ will return in bodily form to rule and reign over all creation. Scripture gives no timeline as to when this will occur, only assuring that it will be unexpected and glorious. Because of the mystery surrounding these events, several views have emerged in Christians' attempts to understand everything the Bible teaches about about this return and Christ's millennial reign. One view holds that upon his return, Christ will begin a literal thousand-year reign on earth. Another holds that this this millennium occurs in the church age to be followed by his return. And another still holds that the millennium symbolically represents Christ's reign in heaven and in the uh, hearts of God's people while we wait for his return. And so despite these differences, all views agree that the imminent return of Christ is the hope of every Christian, knowing that when Christ returns, all things will be made new. So if we had to summarize that and understand that even our definition is not 
entirely exhaustive, um, as we'll see as we when we get into this a bit more. But if we had to summarize this down to a sentence, here's what here's what I would say: Jesus is coming back again, and that is a very very good thing. Right. That I don't know if I could state it any more succinctly than that. That it that, that this is part of the gospel because it's good news that Jesus is coming back because he's completing his work. Yes, his work of redemption, redemption and, and accomplishing the forgiveness of our sins on the cross, that, that has been accomplished. Uh, what was needed to happen in his conquering of death and to uh, unite us with his uh, resurrection life, that, that's taken place with his, his resurrection from the dead. And, uh, but he's gone now. He's ascended at the right hand of the Father. He's going to return. And, and that's, a, that's good news because we're going to see the, the completion, completion or the perfecting uh, of his work and making all things new. This really gets at this uh, key uh, idea that we'll talk about as we, as, we, as we go on to describe some of these uh, different positions about the second coming of Christ. Uh, but the, the already and the not yet. Yes, we're already redeemed. We're already with Christ in some sense, but we're going to be with him in a newer, better, and fuller sense uh, when, he, when, he, when he returns to judge the world in righteousness, uh, whether we'll be, when, as uh, J.R. Uh, Tolkien's known for saying, when all everything that's sad becomes untrue. So, Josh, bonus points for bringing in a little bit of Tolkien. Uh, well done there. Doing, doing what I can, right? That's right. That's right. So let's go on to the next step here, which is, is where we see this doctrine in scripture. So, uh, how about you, how about you give us just a, a couple of places where we find that? Yeah, well, first I think it'd be good to look at, uh, John 14, uh, one through four. And this is a famous passage. This is the evening before the, the crucifixion when Jesus is, uh, with his, uh, disciples and he's preparing them for his coming, uh, departure. That's going to, uh, happen after his uh, death and, and resurrection. And Jesus says here, uh, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the, the way to where I am going. And that's read from the CSB, of course. <laughs> Another one is um, Acts one, uh, Acts one verses nine through eleven. So, after after he said this, he was taken. Jesus was taken up as they were watching. The that's the disciples, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were ga- they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, "Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken." from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Um, another couple of places that, that we see this as well. Um, we're not going to read these for the, for the sake of time, but uh, Matthew 24 and 25 um, are, are pretty critical to our understanding of the second coming of Christ as, as is the book of revelation as a whole, but especially a couple of chapters in it, uh, chapters 19 and 20 are, are pretty key to that. Um, you can also look at, um, uh, you can also look into the epistles as well for other elements of expanded teaching. Um, Paul's, Paul's commentary, for example, on the man of lawlessness and, and things like that. Um, those are, those are other aspects of this as well. Um, so what do we need to understand about this doctrine? 
Well, it's an important doctrine, and some people can have can fall into error in a couple of different ways. Some people can emphasize it so much that their particular view about the sequence of events that plays out around uh, the coming of Jesus again uh, to to Earth, uh, they can they can make all things related to that seem like top tier um, primary issues, and, and that's not the case in terms of the details. Yes. Uh, the the idea the doctrine of the second coming that's that's a first tier issue if someone denies that jesus is returning bodily to rule and to reign over the world to judge uh to judge the world in righteousness that mm-hmm. they've gone into heresy they they that's yes. denial denied a, a a an essential uh component of, of the gospel but uh there are some people who will say well because not all the details are all that clear and there's so much de- debating and infighting about the exact details regarding the the sequence uh the timing of the events around jesus return the nature of the millennium uh well then it must not be that important if it's not that clear to everyone and that that's that's an error too because we need to recognize it at the core saying that jesus is going to return to uh bring his people with him into the new heavens and the new earth and to judge judge the, the 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 living and the dead as the as the creeds say uh we 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 need to recognize that that's a vital importance that's a that's a first order importance but yeah uh we can nonetheless have healthy uh discussion and disagreement about some of the exact details about how that how that all plays plays out and that's what that's what we'll be talking about as we uh as we review uh, or give something of a survey of these of these different understandings of the of the millennium, uh, this thousand year period that's referenced in uh, Revelation twenty. Uh, as we discuss that, we'll, we'll be seeing how Christians can have a uh, charitable hospitality to differences uh, o- over this this discussion. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it, Josh. And uh, so let's let's do that. And what we're gonna do to kick it off is, is we're actually going to read verses one through six of Revelation chapter 20. And the reason that we're going to do that is, is because this is the passage that really is uh, in the crosshairs of this, this whole discussion about all of these different, different viewpoints about the, the whens and hows exactly of Christ's return. Again, all who, with the possible exception of one of these, um, and we'll, and you'll see why when we get there. But with the possible exception of one, all of these views all agree on the big ideas that that you outlined, that Christ will return. He will return bodily to judge the living and the dead and to usher in the new creation in its entirety. Right. Um, that's really, really important. So when we talk about this, we want people to recognize that this is an in-house debate within right. within the church. And so everyone who holds to these faithfully mm-hmm. is a genuine brother or sister in Christ. And so right. we need to treat each other in those conversations in that way. So let's, uh, let's kick this off with um, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. 
Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to, to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the final resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So a thousand years shows up in this a whole lot. And that's yes. And it's amazing just how much discussion and debate there has been around what this actually means. So Josh, how about you? How about you? help us understand some of these viewpoints well way we can kind of posture ourselves for this discussion and knowing that it's a it's intramural it's in-house as we could say what's a what's a thousand years between friends right let's yeah exactly let's put it that way it can seem like a huge uh vast difference to disagree over what that uh, amount of time actually refers to yeah uh but uh but actually there there is uh what i would consider some purposeful ambiguity and mystery uh in, in the way that scripture uh talk, talks about it and 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 choosing uh, our view opting for what we feel like is the is the best view uh that describes uh what uh, what scripture teaches in, in totality on, on this issue hopefully our 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 view will take into consideration how how the Bible is using this this sort of fig, this sort this sort of figure of, of a thousand years, and so if we want to set the table, and now the the nerdy terminology is gonna gonna come, and I just want to you know prepare everybody to take a deep breath. I'm gonna have to take a deep breath to to say all the syllables that are that are coming coming about, and uh, I don't want to give too much of an apology for this because terminology is just meant to be helpful because yes. we use terms so that we don't have to repeat ourselves over and over by way of description. So. Uh, it's like one time when I was describing this to a man, he got kind of unsettled and annoyed by all by the by the four primary positions among Orthodox Christians when it comes to the millennium. Uh, we were watching a basketball game at the time, and I said, "Hey, what do you, what do you call that?" He he said, "What?" I said, "Well, when the person from the other team retrieves the ball after the uh, other team has uh, shot the ball and missed the field goal." And then it becomes that team's possession. Oh, well, that's a defensive rebound. Right. So you say defensive rebound, so you don't have to describe that thing in that verbose way, the same thing every time. So just keep that in mind. It's what I want our listeners to keep in mind. When we use these terms, it's meant to save people time in the context of the discussion so that you know uh what someone's view is, is referring to or what it what it entails but uh mm -hmm. first if we're, if we're gonna be uh painting in these you know somewhat broad strokes today is the view of called pre-millennialism now like all the other uh millennial views uh the name of this one is oriented around when jesus will come back in relation to the millennium that thousand year period that we read about in revelation 20. so with pre-millennialism uh, just to break it down, pre meaning prior. So this refers to Jesus coming back, returning to earth prior to the millennial reign. Now with this view, you have uh, one of the earliest uh, es eschatological views or millennial views uh, in, in church history. Some, some would argue this is the 
first one to really uh, be developed because uh, the the early church fathers uh, had an emphasis and concern that Jesus reigned bodily on earth and that he would do so in a in a state of time where things weren't uh, still uh, were, weren't were still somewhat plagued or affected by sin. They're not yet they're not yet perfect. There's still sin and death and unbelief to some extent, but but to a lesser extent because mm-hmm. uh, Jesus has come come to earth so this is one of probably the oldest uh, millennial view in the church and it's what's it's the version of premillennialism called historical or classical premillennialism you might see it referred to in more scholarly uh, sources as kiliaism and that kiliaism comes from the uh, the greek word kilios um for for 1000 there that's used in passages like revelation 20 and for those curious, the spelling of that is with a ch and not with a k, uh, because that is how um, that is how sometimes language works when you're transliterating. <laughs> right, right, right. Because you think a kilometer and the you know the, the metric system being based on tens and thousands, and so it's it has that that sort of uh, lexical uh, relationship, I guess, with the you could say modern modern day yeah. uh, English. And so that, that is that is an interesting factoid. Uh, but this this view, at least in its it's a classical version, uh, didn't so much pin or weight uh, weight uh, its its belief, its teaching on the on the fact that this is a, a really precise one thousand years. They would see thousand years in more symbolic terms. It stands for a prolonged period. So if mm-hmm. Jesus reigned on earth for 887 years or 976 years, they wouldn't say, oh, well, the Bible must not know what it's talking about because it wasn't a real thousand years. No, it's it's just saying a, a, a broader, prolonged amount, amount of time that Jesus uh, reigns before uh, the final resurrection, final judgment, new heavens, uh, new earth. But you do have a variant of what's called premillennialism develop in the, in the mid to late 1800s. It becomes really popular in the 1900s, it's what's called dispensational premillennialism. And one of the things that's different about this is that unlike all the the, the various uh, millennial positions that have existed throughout church history, and we'll talk about a couple other of those uh, in a moment, is that it separated uh, the second coming into sort of two stages or two points, and that you had this sort of secret coming that people today know, likely know, some of our listeners would likely know is the rapture. You see mm-hmm. this depicted in the left behind books and movies and so forth. And this, this really was a novel view uh, in terms of the history of the church to have this sort of secret component of the second coming. And then you have the seven year period in which this uh, tribulation period happens where things are chaotic and judgment abounds on earth uh, before Jesus comes publicly and visibly to rule and to reign for the thousand years. And, and with uh, the hermeneutic involved with a dispensational premillennial view uh, you have a you have a strong emphasis on the the promises made to Israel that they will inhabit that land, and mm-hmm. so really strong emphasis that Jesus will reign in the land uh, that we know today is Palestine, the land of Canaan, the promised land where where Israel, ancient Israel, had existed uh, in the in the Old Testament record. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is going to reign there physically, and there there tends to be a strong emphasis on the one thousand years that it's a literal. Uh, precise 1000 years that he's going to um, he's going to inhabit uh, his throne from from an earthly Jerusalem before the the new heavens new earth and so you have this this coming back of Jesus 
to take believers out of the world before chaos and judgment come down. But then they, they come back after the end of the seven year period of plague and, and trial. And then that's where you would have the final resurrection, final judgment, new heavens, new earth, no more, no more effects, no more lingering effects of sin or unbelief, anything, anything like that. Uh, yeah. after, after, after the seven years, plus the 1000 year reign where Jesus reigns on earth, where there's still unbelievers, uh, ex- coexisting with non-Christians. So you still have believers, followers of Jesus who need to be glorified and you need to, and then you have during this thousand year period, these unbelievers who still need to be judged. So that's why, uh, that's why it's, it's still premillennial. Jesus is back, but there's still more to the story after he comes back and um, sets up his thousand year reign. So that, that kind of gives you a broad idea about uh, premillennialism and it's, it's two most uh, prominent forms. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it should be mentioned again, um, that a dispensational premillennialism, um, you may also hear it as premillennial dispensationalism that really has interestingly become the dominant view, particularly in Western evangelicalism. Um, yeah. it is very, and it's uniquely American in its, in its, devising um which is which is interesting it is is. and within it as well there are multiple multiple streams as well i remember a uh a pastor um of one of the churches i i was a member of we were talking about the second coming and and so i remember him uh getting to this and he's like okay so you need to know that there are multiple views on on the second coming and i was expecting okay all right we're going to talk about this 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 and this in broad scope and instead it was it was uh he was explaining the different perspectives of within dispensationalism itself right. and so it just brought a smile to my face because it was like oh this is interesting <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> non-judgmental smile just right, to be right, clear right. everybody right now let's uh speaking of non-judgmental let's uh sure. let's move on to another one of our millennial views which is post-millennialism mm-hmm. so the whole idea here is that jesus return is post or after the millennial reign um with this one of course that would mean that the millennium doesn't begin at jesus return we get to basically here's a way to think about it we get to start the party and jesus joins in as soon as things are ready for him so he's the guest of honor at the party um and shows up exactly when he means to um so the influence uh on the influence here is like basically what this is is like the millennial period is the influence of the gospel penetrating the nations and transforming society um, over an ambiguously lengthy period of time. So making so it's an emphasis on the call to make disciples of all nations. And after the world is predominantly Christian in some sense um, and prosperous as a result, Jesus returns to bring to pass the final resurrection, the final judgment, new heavens, new earth, new everything else. Um, this view was... Um, you know, has fairly lengthy roots back throughout throughout history. Um, I I remember seeing some debate over some of the some of the the church fathers um, over were some of them were some of them post millennial 
or not. Mm-hmm. And even as even as you know, late within that group as Augustine being like, okay, was he was he post millennial or was he or was he you know our next one all millennial, um, right. <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, so maybe I'll get you to weigh in on that in a minute. But uh, but what's important to know here is that this view itself was very popular, um, bordering on the dominant view within certain reform and mainline Protestant circles until right. about World War One. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and so this the experience of World War One and the trauma that came along with that uh, made people think that we're not necessarily on this prosperous trajectory as we might have thought. The, the post-millennial view would have been especially uh, popular with the Puritans. You think of all the momentum, uh, the hopefulness, the optimism that would have come from them starting in the new world. Uh, those who, the, mm-hmm. the, those are the Puritans who crossed over to the colon and uh, began the colonies that became the United States. Eventually, uh, Jonathan Edwards, for, uh, for instance, held this view of post mm-hmm. millennialism. And so this isn't just something for kooks. It, it's something that uh, it's a, it's a view that's trying to take seriously how the gospel does affect society and can transform uh, society. So you'll, you'll have uh, a, some of some some of the people um, proponents of a more transformationalist view of culture uh, a lot of christian reconstructed reconstructionist um, uh, types will will hold hold to this view and it's because they think that the gospel is going to christianize uh, the world on some sense it doesn't mean that every individual becomes a christian no it's more realistic than that yeah uh, but but it does say that the gospel really is going to profoundly change uh, culture where where it is accepted. And so the Great Commission, where we are charged to make disciples of all nations, they take that in a very straightforward way. That the nations as a as a whole collectively, not necessarily every individual again, uh, will become Christian. Yes, yes. And so um, there's a, there's a strain of looking back longingly uh, toward this that we see in much of the, really much of the culture warring that we see going on mm-hmm. in society, that it's like, well, if we if we want to bring our nation back to God is some of the rhetoric that is often used. And it, right. it that would find its roots in, in this sure. view to sure. some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, there's, there's a couple more views that we've got, though. Yeah, yeah, we got it. The next one we'll look at, is called amillennialism, and so you think a or not here it pronounced amillennialism. Um, it just feels more natural to me, I guess, as a Tennessean to say amillennialism. I would uh, say it is amillennialism yeah, as opposed to a. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I I hear it more that way, but sometimes you'll hear amillennialism, and I bring that up because the a is a is a prefix and negation, as they say. I know that was really nerdy English grammar stuff, but excuse me for a moment. It's important. Uh, the a a so think of without so. Like if you say something is if someone's apathetic or apathetic, they they don't care about something, they don't have a passion about it. Or atheist, it's a belief that there is no God. So atheist, absence of, of theism. Mm-hmm. So this get this doesn't deny so much that there is a millennium at all, but it has a different understanding of the nature of the millennium in terms of when it comes to exist. So it's more of a spiritual understanding of the millennium and if you're going to get my opinion based on my limited interaction on of, with augustine on, on this issue i would say he falls more in the all-millennial camp he tends to be associated with uh mm-hmm. with, with uh, this this group but the uh mm-hmm. the all-millennial view sometimes it gets maligned as oh this is the 
allegorical view or the the view that doesn't take serious uh, God's promises to Israel. Uh, well, no, it's, it's not so much trying to do that. It, it's trying to emphasize the already not yet com, uh, aspect of the kingdom of God and that there's a sense in which all believers, all followers of Christ are already presently reigning with Christ. Uh, you think of Ephesians 2 language that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Um, we, we are already reigning with Christ in that sense, but in particular, most forms of amillennialism will locate the reign with Christ with the departed saints, those who are believed in Christ but have passed on, um, who are now in heaven with Christ. They are reigning with Christ in this partial sense and that they're no longer affected by by sin they've they've escaped that but they're still awaiting the final resurrection where soul and body are, are united but they're reigning with christ in his throne they would apply the, the the language of description that's in revelation 20 like we uh read today where john saw uh the souls of these saints uh, of the martyrs coming to life and this is this is referred to what he calls the the first resurrection the second death has no power over those uh, who have experienced the first resurrection and so rather than this being referring to the physical resurrection per se, this refer to the souls of believers going to be with, with Christ in heaven. So they, they await a second uh, resurrection as it were. And, and though I also want to nuance that to say, there are some amillennialists who would say the first resurrection refers to uh, regeneration are being born again spiritually. So within these views, there's always room for nuance and particularity in terms of uh, working out the, the details, but the, it's not that they don't believe in a millennium, but it's that the millennium reign exists with Christ in heaven during this sort of um, period in between the first and second coming. Uh, I would see the coming of Christ in two stages. So you have the first coming incarnation. He comes to deal with sin, uh, dies, rises again, sins to the Father, and he's coming back to judge the world and set up his kingdom in full visible form and that's where you get the full experience of what a millennial reign is about and that's reigning with christ in a public visible uh fashion uh but i believe there's still one more view that we want to we want to talk is. about that, and, it, and not not so much a serious matter but i'll, I'll let you uh, share that with the with with the audience this final uh view we're going to be discussing today you know i appreciate that because this is the uh this is in fact the most widely held view of all of oh, these oh yeah Absolutely. Of all time. Because of know, all time. Different, different times in church history, different ones are more popular than others. But this That's one's right. probably all time. This one always has a, uh, a, a large following to some extent. Yep, most definitely. Most definitely. And this, of course, is panmillennialism. So we don't know when Jesus is coming back. Maybe we don't even care. We just know it's all going to pan out in the end. Also known as lazy man's eschatology. That's right. That's right. And uh, just for the just for the record, uh, <laughs> neither Josh nor I hold to pan millennialism. I do not believe. Um. <laughs> no, I don't think we're nope. going to say on air what our views are specifically, but we'll go ahead no. and eliminate the, the pan millennial option. Is, Absolutely, is that's the only one we're going to eliminate. Eliminate. Right. 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 Yeah. We'll say so there are things to discuss: merits and weaknesses of of all the others, but. Uh, we should we should at least take the Bible seriously enough to know that we can have a, a general outline of, of knowing uh, the, the the details of uh, of the events uh, that surround Christ's return. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's really really what we can do when we're when we're talking about this. Again, we have to we have to remember that this is an in-house debate. So, um, right. 
So it's not actually, it wouldn't be helpful to that discussion for us to, to say, um, to say, well, this is where we land um, personally on this um, Mm -hmm. because it will one, it's entirely possible you and I land in different camps um, because we're two different people. And Mm. therefore we would by we would naturally have differing convictions on, on that particular issue. Um, Or it's likely that we would anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, There is, um, but also the, the reality is, is if we, if we take a step for a step back a little bit more practically for a second, when we think about what we do working on the gospel project, um, we we want to serve churches, right? We want to serve we want to serve lots of different kinds of churches, mm. and so our goal our goal and intent is not to advocate for one particular view over another. It's to say all here is what we can know for certain that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus will reign, that Jesus will judge the living and the dead, that and that he will make all things new in a mm. world where sin, death are no more. And that is and that is good news for us. Right. right. Which yeah. leads us into the differences that this doctrine makes practically because mm-hmm. the other piece of this is is that we don't want people to misunderstand this as being um, you know, really being an exercise in theological nerdery um, because just because we are not advocating for one specific position does not mean that you should not have a position or that right. you should not care about this because you should. So Josh, what are some differences that this doctrine can make in our lives? Well, this is where Christianity is, is a worldview uh, really affects everyday life because we think history is going somewhere. And so the return of Jesus really is an affirmation of the Christian worldview that history is going somewhere and that that place is good and that our actions, our beliefs, our behaviors, uh, everything has consequence and everything is going to be uh, cashed out or, or reckoned in, in the end. So it brings, it brings meaning to our lives knowing that Jesus is going to return and that suffering is going to end. So there, there's meaning, there's, there's an end in view of human suffering and then also of, of evil and death and these things that have plagued, plagued us for uh, so, so long since, uh, since the, the, the fall with Adam and Eve. Uh, there is going to be an end to this when we do see uh, the one who lived a truly and authentic human life, Jesus, who succeeded were Adam, Noah, the patriarchs, Israel, David, all failed, and where mm-hmm. you and I fell as well uh, to bring about proper dominion, we're going to see all things brought beneath his feet. So there, there's meaning uh, and where life is going, where history is going, because Jesus is coming back, and it we don't we don't get this meaning, we don't get this assured certainty uh, for the hope that we have, uh, because we've been smart enough to put it all together and know the timeline of when Jesus is going to come back. We don't do that by having the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another. Although today, I guess it'd be a tablet in the other to look at our news, but that, <laughs> that's not, that's not what our hope's based in that we can figure out all the details by looking at the Bible, uh, on one hand and the, and the news in another, but rather that the risen Jesus promised his followers, as we read about, uh, in acts one, that he was uh, going to return. 
and that our job in the midst of that in the in the meanwhile while we wait his return is to is to go and go and make disciples is that we'll be his witnesses that language in acts one says as we as we take as we uh, take the gospel message to uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of, of the earth. So there, there's meaning to our lives and there's meaning to the mission because it's going somewhere. And that's somewhere is where the, the true son of God, who's also the son of man, uh, is going to have all things subjected beneath his feet as God originally intended for humanity to, to have for them. Something else that this doctrine does is, is as it provides this, this hope and confidence that, that you were describing, it also should be a motivator for us as we, right. as we seek to really seek to fulfill the mission that God has given us, that we are to make disciples of people of all different nations, that we are to, uh, that we are to be in, involved and engaged in the sharing of the gospel um, right now, today. Right. And the reason that this motivates us is, is because it gives us this beautiful picture at the end of everything to mm-hmm. say that there is going to be a countless multitude of people all praising God together. And we want as many people as possible to be a part of that because that's, that's, that's the most beautiful thing in the world. And it will be the most beautiful thing in the world, um, aside from Jesus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One other thing that that this should do, though, is is that um, although we've we've said there is disagreement on this, and is that that disagreement should actually motivate us to try to understand. Right. No one, no one can understand this completely, but we should, but we should, it should stir in us a desire to understand to the best of our ability to not be pan millennialists and and just hope it all shakes out at the end, or to in, to embrace lazy man's eschatology. As uh, as I love the way you right. put that, by the way, that was really helpful. Oh, well. Thanks. But to but to look at look at the strengths and weaknesses of all positions and 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 see where where does scripture point me and right. hold that firmly but open-handedly um as best as you can and and embrace that to the glory of god right yeah to piggyback on that i think that people can discard it because of the disagreement or that this isn't one of the whatever position you take isn't one of the clearest doctrines in in scripture in terms Mm -hmm. of the specific millennial view, but that doesn't mean we should dismiss, dismiss it entirely. Eschatology, some people think is just about what happens at the very end. And sometimes we're, we're misled into thinking that or, or something, or we might uh, understand because that's the last thing that's mentioned in a systematic theology textbook or in a statement of faith is all the last things. Well, no, that's just logically kind of where, last things in eschatology fits but eschatology more than just being about the very last things that happen at the end of history as we know it uh, it's about ultimate things and so it gets at what i was referring to earlier that god's purpose for humanity was to rule and reign with him over creation and we get to see this with the crucified and risen one coming to fulfill that on our behalf and so when you when you're putting things together to come down on a millennial view it's both going to reveal your overall approach to scripture and it's going to uh it's going to reflect what things you prioritize in scripture so that's that's where it can be a really healthy process to uh work through the relevant passages and come to uh the clearest idea that you can about what you think the the bible teaches as a whole 
uh, on this subject. And it's, that's a great thing to do in, in community with, with other believers. And also when I say the community of the church, that doesn't just mean believers who are alive today. We have a litany of testimony from believers from the centuries of theologians and biblical scholars who have written on the subject that should be involved in that, that discussion as well as we uh, strive for better understanding about what, what the Bible um, teaches. And so hopefully as you work out through, work out your view of this, uh, you'll adopt the view that you think best reflects the Bible's own priorities and, and best incorporates ambiguity where the, where the Bible has an ambiguity on, on the matter. Because as you said, Aaron, none of us are going to ultimately solve this. There are strengths and weaknesses to, to each view, but we want to, we, we want to choose a view um, that's going to help us make better sense of the whole uh, of scripture. And that's, that's what, what, why systematic theology is a helpful thing. And that, yes, we don't want to impose a foreign system on the scripture, but we also want to recognize because it is God's word, it is consistent across its totality, across the canon. It's, it's written by one ultimate author uh, through the many human authors. And so recognizing that the pieces will fit together in some way, is just recognizing that scripture is, God inspired and the Holy Spirit led men to write down these things and that we benefit by reflecting on them and trying to put together what, what they're saying as a whole. Man, that is a good note for us to end on for, for this discussion. So thank you for, for chatting about this really big topic. And thank you all for hanging in there. Um, I know this was probably a little bit more like drinking from a fire hose than, uh, than you're used to when we're talking about doctrine on this but uh i hope it's been helpful so thank you for listening to this episode and if you enjoyed it please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show and for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel please visit gospelproject.com